The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Beth Coppage. And start reading with verse 1. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Jesus Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, not as lords over those entrusted to you but examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory... By Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for these few minutes that we have together. And we praise you for the power of your living word. And Lord, we ask today that you might open the word to our hearts and that you might make us transformed women, women of the burning heart, women with white-hot hearts for God. But Peter is talking here, and he wedges in a, a passage at the end of this book, some of the last words that he has to say before he finishes this chapter that he's writing to the this book that he's writing to the people of the dispersion that were in Asia Minor and he's writing some things that are very dear on his heart he comes in this one paragraph comes in the middle of an exegesis on suffering and then he closes the book talking more about suffering and what he is preparing the church of Jesus Christ for and these believers for is the outside pressure that is coming in on their lives the pressure that's coming from a very hostile environment a very an environment that is anti-grace And so he's saying, if you and I, and as they, were going to be able to stand strong in that kind of environment that was hostile to grace, they needed to be careful of a few things. And you would think, and his game plan for what, how to be able to stand in the evil day is very interesting. He appeals to the leadership among the Christians. And he says, to the elders among you, I exhort you. If there is pressure coming from the outside, what we need to do as a body of believers is to tighten up the inside. And that you and I need to be living the way we should live as believers so that as the pressures come from outside, 
we are not fragmented and disunified among ourselves, but there is a unity and a strength in the body of Jesus Christ. So the pressures hit from the outside. We do not crumble, but we grow in grace and in strength. Isn't that good news? And where does he start? He starts with leadership. And it says the judgment for the church will begin with the leadership. Now you say, well, that excludes me. I'm not an elder in the church. Oh, but just keep reading. He says, to the elders who are among you, I exhort you as a fellow elder. And he appeals to them as an elder, one who is an older Christian in the things of God. And he gives two qualifications for his leadership, his eldership here. One is he is a witness of what? Word we love, right? Witness of what? The sufferings of Jesus Christ. He is a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of his glory. How indelibly the sufferings of Jesus Christ were etched into the mind and heart of the Apostle Peter. He was there at the cross. He was there at Gethsemane. He was there at the trial. He denied him at the trial. And he saw what Jesus Christ suffered for us. So the sufferings of Jesus Christ are in the warp and woof of this whole book. And that if you and I are to be followed, followers of the crucified Lord, some of the price of the gospel will hit your life and my life. The cost of the gospel will hit us. And he said, not only though am I a participant in his sufferings and a witness of his sufferings, but I also saw his glory. And it reminds us of the transfiguration when he said Jesus was transfigured before, their, before them and he, they fell on their faces before them, him in absolute adoration and not even in awe by the powerful transfiguration of Jesus Christ and that he is coming back again and that will occur again. He said, I've tasted a little bit of the glory this side of heaven of that that waits on the other side. Now he said, as a fellow elder, I have some things to say to you. He said, I want you as fellow Christians and older Christians in the faith, there are some things to do and some ways we are to lead people. And how are we to lead them? He says, shepherd the flock. The flock of God which is among you. And I dare say today there is not a woman in this crowd that is not a shepherdess of some little flock. You may not have children. But you may have a whole state that you're shepherding. You may have children, and if you have children, you've got two, three, one, four sitting around your table that you are a shepherdess and you are shepherding a flock that God has given you. If you have a grandchildren, you have still children that you are to shepherdess and you are to care for. If you have neighborhood children like Vicki was talking about, there are children that you are responsible for. Every single one of us, as we get saved and filled with the Holy Spirit and God meets us, God gives us a flock that he wants us to shepherd. It may not be a 100,000 people, but it may be three, four, five. And that's what our whole Bible study is built around, where it says older women teach the younger women. And that God has some women for you to invest in, some other people to invest in. And if you are a wife, a mother, a grandmother, a neighbor, an aunt, that God has some children that you are to invest your life in. 
I read last week in the U.S. News and World Report that homicide among teenagers under 17 years of age is up 150% in the last 10 years. In the same, in the same magazine, I was very interested to note about 10 pages after the violence that is hitting the teenagers, and our nation doesn't know what to do with these violent children and teenagers, that, that, and wh whether we're to lower the age and judge, the, judge them as adults because of the reckless homicides that they're committing. In the same magazine, there's an, a whole article on women mentoring women in the workforce, and it says that 48% of the managerial staff in the United States of America now is under the care of women. And in one article we've got, all the women are managing our businesses now, and there is absolutely not a soul left in the home. So the children come home to no one. There is no one there. And we want to buy into the lie that, the, that they will be all right, and they will not be all right. We have a God-given responsibility that those children, one day we will be accountable for their eternal souls when we get to judgment, and we cannot just cast off their care upon our nation or our government, or even the best daycare center that is to be provided. There is a responsibility for their souls, and it is a flock that God has given you and I to shepherd us, but we are abdicating it. And what is happening? Our society in droves. Children are going out and killing off each other. Do you know who the babysitter has been? It has been the television. It has been the videos. It has been the things that they've been able to see because there's nobody there that says, no, you may not do that. And it's taken the gaff to bring in order and discipline into their lives. I think Jesus is saying to us today, are you and I willing to shepherd the flock that God has given us? Now let us see what he says about shepherding. It's interesting that he says here the same thing almost that Jesus said to him. In John 21, Jesus is getting ready to go back to the Father. He, they go fishing when they don't know what to do, and Peter says, let's go fishing. They end up going fishing, and they don't catch any fish all night. And then Jesus said, put your, your net on the other side, and they draw in the fish, and there's 156 fish, and they have breakfast together. And in the context of that breakfast, Jesus looks at the Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And what is he meaning? Do you love me more than fish, your livelihood, your security, your money in the bank? your retirement plan? Do you love me more than your, getting your identity out of a job? Do you love me more than any of these things here? Do you love me more than these? And they're all good things. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then he asks him that three times, Feed, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And I think it's with, as Peter's getting ready to close out this book and getting ready to face Nero himself, 
He says, let me tell you, if you and I are going to survive in an evil and a degenerate generation, that you and I need to shepherd the flock that God has given to every single one of us. And you and I need to be shepherdesses. And how are we to do that? We are to come into a love relationship with Jesus Christ, that we love Jesus Christ more than our own lives. We love him. We love him more than our security, our jobs, our influence, our reputation, and that we enter into a love relationship with Jesus Christ that gives us the capacity to shepherd the flock that he's given us. And how do we shepherd? We shepherd as overseers. Now, how does the world lead? The world leads by domination and perks. And you do what I say because I tell you what to do. Or they lead by manipulation, getting something out of you because it will be good for the company or be good for them. He said, no, you are to lead as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as lording over it by those that are entrusted to you, but examples. You and I are to come so that just like the Lord Jesus in John 10, he laid down his life for the sheep. You and I are to be willing to lay down our lives for those that God has given to us. To lay aside our own, what we figure our own best interests or getting our own self-fulfillment. To lay down our lives that another might live. And what's beautifully illustrated in those of us who have born babies, and especially those who have just born babies, or in the process. Literally, for a baby to come into the world, somebody must be willing to lay down their life that that one might be born. That they literally must carry them for nine months. And God is saying, are you willing to carry the ones that I have given to you? That you would carry them in your very being and lay down your life that, that might, they might live. And then it's not, what is this doing for me? Or how do I get self-fulfillment out of this? It is, what is the will for, of God for me? And Jesus, you could come into my heart and put a contentment in my heart. So the bottom line for me is obeying God, not avoiding hardship or inconvenience. So the motivation of my life is different. He said, in this life, you may not get all the rewards that you long to get. If you begin to choose me and shepherd the flock of God that God has given to you in your churches, in your congregations, in your family, you may not have all the physical and material things that you'd like to have in this life. There may be inconveniences. There may be incredible sacrifices. But once again, Peter says, the end is not here. This is not where it ends. Said, if you invest in those that God gives us here, where it will all even out is when we get into eternity. I think Vicki like, Vicky Knox was very apropos in what she said about the incredible value of children and their incredible in availability to the spirit of Jesus Christ. I remember when... when um, one day when my Katie Beth was younger, and she's on my heart today because it's her birthday. But I remember when she was younger, and we had a picture on my mother's wall from the Sistine Chapel. Michelangelo's print from the Sistine Chapel. And we had come home from Great Britain, and we were living with my folks till we could um, 
till we went back overseas. And one day she looked at it, and in the corner of this part of the, the print was a boat. And in that boat were all these people going to hell. And she looked at my mom, and she calls her Goosey, and she said, Goosey, what is that boat, and who are those people? And said, well, honey, that's a boat, and those people are being carried to hell because they don't love the Lord Jesus, and Jesus was in the center. And she said, I don't like that boat. And Goosey said, well, honey, you don't have to go in that boat to hell. So Jesus has made provision, and you can ask Jesus into your heart, and he can live in your heart. And you can go to heaven. And the other part of the picture was all heaven. She said, I like the upper part of that picture. So Goosey said, well, anytime you're ready to talk to, to ask Jesus into your heart, you just come back. And I'll pray with you. So she ran off to play, and in about an hour, all of a sudden, just like Vicki talked about, she felt a tug on her skirt, and she said, what can I, honey, what do you need? She said, I'm ready. And Mother said, you're ready for what? She said, well, I'm ready to not go in that boat. She said, I am ready to go where they're all in heaven. I don't want to go in that boat, Goosey. I don't want to go in that boat. And so they went and knelt down, and she asked Jesus into her heart. And I think what God is saying here, that you and I need to be available for the Spirit of Jesus because we never know when those opportunities are going to come. You can't plan them. And if we're not ever there, when we are available, doesn't mean they'll be available. And you and I need to be living so under the stream of the Spirit that we are there so that when God gives the opportunity and His Spirit works in the lives of our children or our neighbor children, our grandchildren, that we're available for His Spirit. Likewise, it says, not only are the older people and all of us that are to shepherd our children and our younger our the ones that he's given us. What is our response to be to those that are older in the Lord? And what is our response to be as a body of believers to each other? As we are to submit ourselves to our elders, the younger ones in the faith, and we are to be submissive to one another. Once again, he closes out the book of 1 Peter with the same two words that have been his theme throughout the whole book. Suffering and submission. We are to live in submission to, one, to Jesus Christ and to one another. And he says we are to be clothed with humility. And the, the Greek word there is like an apron. An apron that you put on that totally covers you like you were in a meat market or something. Or you were doing a, a barbecue where it's a heavy apron and you didn't want to get anything on you. We're to be clothed in humility. And what is humility? Humility is where I put God's interest ahead of my own. Where I put God's agenda ahead of my own. And where I put your interests ahead of my own. So that I begin to live with a focus other than myself. And there's no one and no power in all the earth that can do that in our lives except the power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. So that you and I come to the place where it is not me, myself, and I, and what's in it for me, and how do I get you to do what I want you to do. But there can come in my life where the bottom line is, what does Jesus Christ want me to do? And what is the best thing for you, and how can I minister to you? So that as we relate to one another, it is how can I love you and serve you. The same week that I read that article in, in US News and World Report, 
I read an old Christianity Today copy that I found, and I felt God led me, led me to it. It was April 1995, and Chuck Colson has an article, an editorial on the back page, and he said in an increasingly hostile American environment that is hostile to the gospel and the things of God, that, that he said, how do we impact our culture? And he said, do you know what? The church, the non-Christian world is very antagonistic to the church. But the, and the only way we have any kind of power or impact upon a non-Christian community is when you and I begin to love supernaturally. Because there's something in the heart of every single person that longs for that kind of love. And when they actually see it demonstrated, where people lay aside their own self-interests and agendas to pick up an agenda that God has for them, an agenda that includes other people, that he said that is the drawing card for our generation if we are going to impact the world. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. And what he said in chapter 4, have fervent love for one another. It's exactly what the Lord Jesus said, where he said, let them know that you believe you're my disciples because you love one another. How do we love one another? And Chuck Colson gave an example. He said he was on the public broadcasting system and was being interviewed by a woman, very sophisticated woman, and said... Um, she said, well, well, what was there about it after you became a Christian? The, the thing that amazed you most about be, being part of a Christian community. And he said, I was stunned by their love for me. He said, I found out when I was in prison that one of the men, the Sixth Republic, the Al Qui, who was most, the top, one of the top, most six influential Republicans in the House, came and to him and said, I'm going to the president and ask if I could finish serving your term because of the family pressures that are in your home right now, Chuck. And Chuck was absolutely blown out of the water. And he said he shared that with this broadcaster and the woman started to cry. And so they were doing the scene and she had to stop because her mascara was running. So she said, cut, cut, and she went and got composure, came back and said, let's run it again. So she asked the same question, he gave the same response, she began to cry again. They had to go through it twice because her mascara kept running. He said, what the world cannot get over is when you and I really love one another. Do you know what that's challenged me? I said, Jesus, do I know anything about loving like you love? And you know, I really, the closer I get to him, I think, no, I don't think I really do. That's why I love that Amy Carmichael hymn that we sing, to breathe on me, breath of God. Love through me, love of God. Because there's something in my heart that always tends to twist it. And it's only until the Holy Spirit comes in that you and I can genuinely begin to love like Jesus really loves. And the world can say, my what motivates that woman's life that she lives like that? He said, we're to be clothed in humility. And we're not to be proud. He gives grace to the humble. The same thing he says in James. He says, 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is in verse 6. Because do you know, as pressures hit you, and you say, Lord, I am serving you, I am loving you, I am living for you. Why is all this pressure hitting me? Even though you may not understand it like Job didn't understand it. Even though you may not know quite what God's doing in your situation. Say, Jesus, I submit to you in this. I choose you. I choose to love you. I choose to trust you. Even though I don't understand what you've allowed in my life. And then the tremendous verse that I love. Cast all your anxieties on him. For he cares for you. So that as the pressures from a hostile world hit your life and my life, pressures from a a non-Christian world hit us, pressures even from non-Christian family members, we can say, Lord, I submit to this. I receive this from your hand. I, I receive what you send me. I reject what the enemy sent. And that, Lord, you will take it and use it for my good and your glory. And Lord, I give you, I cast all my cares on you. And that goes with Philippians 4, that we're not to be anxious. This was my favorite verse for putting on my kids' lunches. 1 Peter 5, 7. Honey's just cast all your cares today on Jesus because he cares for you. It's one of my favorite ones. And I love that song where you just sing it. Today I don't have to carry anything. All I have to do is cast those cares on Jesus, concentrate on loving Jesus, and letting him love others through me. So that we don't live people pressured and hassled, but we live so that we can cast our cares upon him and let Jesus pick up those burdens and carry them for us. Now he said there's somebody who's interested in in the, the people that Peter's writing to, as interested in them as God is. And there's somebody as interested in you as God is and as me. And he gives us a few verses here to talk about how to deal with them. And it's the enemy of our souls. And he says, you and I need to be sober. We need to be vigilant. Because our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And if we do not realize this, we're foolish. Now, it doesn't mean we need to be concentrating on the evil one. We do not. He's a defeated foe. But we need to be aware of his tactics. And there is, just like a good soldier doesn't have to be afraid or run, a good soldier just resists the enemy. Even so, a Christian soldier can resist the evil one. Just like we talked about in Matthew 4, where when the enemy came and Jesus was led into the temptation, the desert for 40 days to be tempted, he resisted the enemy every time he came to him with the word of God. And the enemy fled. And James talks about, he giveth more grace, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Resist the enemy and he will flee from you. And that as you and I resist the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ and claim the power and authority of God's word, his inerrant, precious, beautiful word, there can come a power in your life and in my life that the enemy doesn't have to take us like a puppet and just bop us around. This week I saw this demonstrated even in my own life. You know how you begin, you have good prayer time and stuff during the week. And then Saturdays is life slows down and you and do you know all day Saturday we kept 
I got up later. It was just, and all day, the kids kept missing. Al and I kept missing. Our family life kept missing. Um, you name it, we missed just all day. And in the middle, about the three quarters of the way through the day, I thought, this day is not prayed over enough. I thought, we, the enemy has come in, and, we, and, and we, I've been wrestling with one thing with one of the kids, and we wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And, in the, and I, I did, it passed through my mind, but I was in the middle of a whole bunch of uh, company and people, and I couldn't do anything. But in the middle of the night, I thought, Lord, if you'll get me to the middle of the night. In the middle of the night, I just said, no way, Jesus. We don't have to live like that anymore. And just say, Lord, you come in and put, and so that our lives are oiled by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I resist the evil one where he is just taking this one child and going over and over and over and over and over and over on a cycle and saying, no more. We have done that enough in Jesus. You release him to go forward, not backward and forward and back and but to just go forward. And I think there can come in our lives as Jesus' wives and mothers to say, enough is enough. It is time to just say, no, we are claiming this one. We are claiming that situation. We are resisting the evil one and everything he intends. And we are going forward with God. And if you need more prayer power, you call somebody in your small group and say, can you meet me for prayer? Or you come to prayer meeting Tuesdays or the early morning prayer meeting Friday. You come and you say, I need more prayer power. And then you'll begin to see, last night we had someone for supper just came in. The whole conversation turned on Jesus. The person came for a few minutes and ended up staying till 9 o'clock. And there was a divine encounter with God. And it was because God's presence was there. There was time that we were prayed up. Let us ask God to make us women that are aware of when we need to be more on our knees. When we need to be more in his presence. And when we need to say, no, you have harassed us long enough, we will not stand for this. In the name of Jesus, we resist you. I remember we had one situation in our family that went on for five years. This, it went on and went on, and it was just like, well, that's just how it is. And then one day I just got so angry, and I was doing my vacuuming, and I just thought, why do I just say that's how it is? So I called up someone and I said, would you help me pray? We've lived with this situation that just is harassment for five years. Would you help me pray? So we went to prayer. And in days, in days, the situation turned around. And remember our verse from Exodus last year? These Egyptians you will see today, you will see again, no more, forever. The situation was totally turned around, and we have never faced that situation again. Those Egyptians died in that water during that period of time, and we have seen those Egyptians again, no more, forever. I wrote it down in my Bible. Are we living below our privileges and just thinking, well, this is just how life it is? It isn't that way. Peter's getting ready to die, and he says, no, resist him. He wants to devour us. He wants to devour our children. We begin to let God carry in our hearts, like Lexington. We begin to carry those in our hearts and say, we are standing in the gap that these would not be lost. Now, I wonder, he says, we're to resist him because the enemy is out there, and he just wants to gulp us down. But Jesus' blood is more powerful, and he says, in verse 10, but that the grace of, but the God of all grace. How much grace? 
all. Whatever circumstance you're in, and that's why if you don't learn any other scripture verse, learn the one, 1 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness, that he has given us all grace for every situation he calls you to bear. And I do not know how he can do it, but he gives you all grace. And if you come and dip into the person of Jesus, say, Lord, I need your grace for this situation. I need you for this situation. That I will not have my old reactions, my old habit patterns, but I will begin to have godly responses and Jesus' responses. Jesus Christ gets permission to enter into that circumstance and turn it around. And he has called us to his eternal glory by Jesus Christ. After you have suffered a while, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. What do the fiery trials do in our lives? They perfect us. Well, things that used to make us madder than a, madder than a hornet, God begins to work in our lives and all of a sudden we don't have the same responses. And our family's amazed and we're more amazed. He begins to perfect our character. He begins to establish us as you and I begin to make decisions on what is the will of God and not on how to avoid hardship or difficulty or inconvenience. He begins to establish us in our faith. And he begins to, so that we're not all pushed around. And then he begins to strengthen us. And the word there, strengthen, is the word that is used only in 1 Peter. And it's like pouring on very strong strength. And then he says he settles us. And he puts us on a foundation so that we are not moved. That's why God lets the trials come. The fiery trials. Because as we appropriate the person and presence of Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit, he does something so real in our lives that he perfects us. He establishes us. He strengthens us. And he settles us on Jesus himself, the firm foundation. And do you know what will begin to happen? The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the work he's building in your life in your home, in your family, in your children. We need to ask God to give us today a vision of who he is and a vision of what he wants to do in us. I read an illustration of a woman who raised five children and she went with her husband to Mexico. And while she was in Mexico, she was interested in um, architecture. They heard about a, cl a club that had been built in the 20s for the wealthy, and, had, and they wanted to go see it. It was no longer in use. So they wandered out into the Mexican de desert and found this resort club. And while she was there, she heard children calling, and there weren't any children. And she looked, and they, they went back home, and the club came up for sale. And God said to her, I want you to go and take with your husband and start an orphanage for children in Mexico. And today, there's an orphanage of 80 children 
in the, this part of Mexico that this little mother of five ends up in the second part of her life going and obeying Jesus Christ in that dimension. Said they have a thousand children that they do child evangelism fellowship with in any given year, as well as the children that they're raising. I read another biography this past week of Henrietta Mears, who was a chemistry teacher and got a call to work in, with, in, with Christian education and went to Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And they had a Sunday school of 400, and God used her, and it grew to 4,000. And then they didn't have Sunday school materials back in the late 40s, the early 50s, so she began to write her own. And there began to be calls all over the country for public, her publications. So they started the Gospel Light publications. Well, then she went overseas on, some, on one of her breaks, and she realized that the missionaries overseas didn't have any Sunday school materials either and didn't have anything translated. So she came home, and they started GWINT, an organization to translate and to distribute Christian materials for those working overseas. And it was at the end of her life that she went, and well, it wasn't at the end, halfway through her life, in 47 after the war, she and her sister went to see Europe. And while she was in Europe, she got a great burden for the tragedy of what had occurred in World War II. Just a single gal. She went back home, and she taught a college Sunday school group. And she challenged the college Sunday school kids to be expendable to Jesus. Just like a soldier has to be when they're in war. Wherever he tells them to go, whatever he tells them to do, to just be expendable for Jesus. Well, that night, four college boys met with her and said, Could you pray with us? One of them happened to be Bill Bright, recently converted, who ultimately started Campus Crusade. Another one happened to be Lewis Evans, who became the pastor of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. The other one happened to be um, uh, uh, Joseph Frank, that I think became head of Young Life. And the fourth one was Dick Halverson, who became the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Those four men met with her as college students and they prayed and they prayed into the night and said, how can God send revival? And they said, well, let him begin in us. So they met together and established a covenant. And it's very similar to our Operation Transformation. They called it the Order of the Burning Heart to give themselves as living sacrifices to Jesus Christ, to be filled with his Holy Spirit to commit themselves to an hour of Bible study and prayer every day, to commit themselves to heart purity and heart holiness, and to win at least one person to the Lord in any given year. And then they called together 600 college kids from all over the United States to meet together to be willing to sign that same covenant and to be available for the Spirit of God. That was in forty-seven. In 49, Henrietta Mears felt God leading her to ask a young evangelist from North Carolina. 
And they said, why are you getting him? He doesn't have much class. And she said, well, I don't know, but I feel God wants him to come. So the young evangelist came and he was preaching, but he was, he was in a crisis of his faith as to whether he would believe in the scriptures as the inerrant word of God or not. And while he was at the retreat center that Henrietta Mears had started, he took his Bible out halfway through the week, laid it on a tree stump, and wrestled God, and in the end result was he put his hands on the word and said, Lord, I choose to believe this is the inerrant word of God, and I give my life to the preaching and proclamation of your truth. Lord, you and you alone are responsible for the results. He came that, back that night and preached to the college group. And 400 out of the 600 came forward. And it wasn't a couple months later that he led his Los Angeles crusade. And it was the young Billy Graham. And you and I sit here and say, what? Can you use me, Jesus? Oh, you don't know who I am. And I want to say, glory, he does know who you are. And he knows who I am. And is he saying, this summer I want you to start good news clubs with the five kids on your block or the five that live around your street or the five that eat at your house? What is he saying to you? Let us get to the place where we say, God, let me get in the stream of your spirit was one chemistry teacher that God touched and look what God did with her life. And it is not that there is a difference in her life and my life. There is no difference in the person. It is the power and reality and availability of our hearts to the eternal God. And will we be available to him? And God is asking us today in a generation where 80% of the children do not go to church 14 and under, will you be part of the missionary team to reach the world that we live in, in Nicholasville, in Lexington, and in, in Wilmore, to reach the world we live in with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things that are in God's heart, would be, we would give him permission to put on our hearts. God says, are you today willing to shepherd the flock that he has given to you? And you need to ask him, Jesus, am I shepherding the flock you have given to me? So that when I get to eternity, I'm not responsible for five billion Chinese at the moment. But I am responsible for these five little kids around my table. I am responsible for the neighbors next door. I am responsible for the extended family. I am responsible for the nation of this nation and then others that God lays on my heart and begin to let God speak to our souls. Let's ask God to make us women of the white hot heart. Women on fire for Jesus Christ and make us shepherdesses who live for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we just praise you today for the privilege of worshiping you. And Lord, we ask that you might so move in our souls that we would be women of the burning heart and that, Lord, our lives might touch the lives of others and we might be faithful to what you have called us. And in the name of Jesus, we resist the evil one today. 
And we praise you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. And we ask you today that, Lord, you would make us soul winners and disciple makers, beginning in our own families. And that, Lord, you would make us women that would count for God. Teach us how to intercede for a lost, broken, bleeding, and dying world. Send Holy Ghost revival to our city, our state, our nation. And we pray, Jesus, that you would make us women that make a difference. In Jesus' precious name, amen.